As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to the latest edition of the Audible. I am Bruce Feldman. I'm flying solo here today, but that's a good thing. As you guys all know, the presenting sponsor of the Audible is Trader Joe's. It's only the best grocery store in the world. So without further ado, as I said, no stew on the podcast today. I believe he went on a vacation heli skiing. My sources are correct in this case. But I'm going to be joined today by actually two of my former colleagues from my ESPN days, both guys with Georgia ties and Georgia roots. One guy who now lives there. The other guy grew up there, and that is the esteemed Ted Miller. Ted, thanks for joining me on the Audible today. Thanks for having me, Bruce. All right, so Ted, I have not been shy about saying this. You were like one of my favorite writers that I've ever worked with. For those who don't know, and if you don't, you're probably not listening to this podcast anyway, but Ted was ESPN.com's go-to guy on the Pac-12 for a long time. He had a really unique voice in part because I think because of his personality, but also because Ted was a very successful columnist in Seattle for a while. Ted, for the, for the people who haven't, no, you haven't, you worked for ESPN for a while and then no longer do. Before we get into what you're doing now, I did want to ask you, do you miss the writing part of it? Well, I like writing. What I'm doing now involves a lot of writing. It's different and I'm enjoying that too. But that was, you know, I, that was why I got in to sports writing in the first place I applied for a job at a newspaper and their opening was in sports so I didn't apply for a sports writing job they just asked me if I was interested so yeah you know I miss it some I mean it's it, it's there's certainly uh, plenty of things to be irreverent when I see results especially in the downer years for the Pac-12 that there were things that I thought were uh, interesting angles but I I really love where I am now and I, I'm still getting to fill my writing Jones so to speak so let's and by the way I appreciate that intro there I'm like sitting Ted, it's never dinner. It's always drinks with you. Just know that. Um, <laughs> so, so tell us what you are doing now. I know you work for a company that's that's in the real world, business world. So fill in the blanks for us. Yeah, well, I work for an Atlanta-based company called Miller Zell, which is a retail experience solutions company. Uh, we basically try to create the ideal customer experience inside retail stores. We do a lot of different things, strategy, research, design, and 
installations. It's a really multi-dimensional company, and uh, it's been really interesting. It's a family-owned business, and my uh, brother is the CEO. He's done a really, really good job of, of running it, and it's been completely different. But uh, I, I like the newness of it, and uh, you know, I haven't looked back. It's 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 interesting how how dynamic it is working there, and we do a lot of exciting things. So tell me, like, what is what is your role there and how did how have you transitioned from going from basically what a lot of people look at and go man that's a pretty dream, dreamy job of all you do is sit around and watch sports and write about it now you're you're with the grown-ups at the grown-ups table <laughs> well as i've told you a few times rediscovering a weekend off is is a really exciting thing for someone when you have uh young children and uh that's been a that's been a cool part of it but uh you know, it, it, it's, I'm a marketing writer. I basically do internal and external communications. And uh, we have a lot of services that, you know, we're trying to find ways to make sure that uh, all available potential clients know our range of activities and, and communicating with them the best possible way. So basically, I got brought in as, as a professional writer into a marketing department, and I've had some great tutelage. Uh, and mentorship from people who have been there and, and understand the industry. And so it's, it's just a matter of like learning about business and learning about retail. And uh, it was funny when I was a sports writer from the outside, I, was, I, I really liked the company. You know, it's my brother and my, my dad founded it. But to understand how much they do and how many great people work there, it's been, it's kind of a team experience. I mean, as a sports writer, even though you work for an organization, and there is a team experience to it. You're not, you, you're really solo. You're out there flying solo, writing your stories, going to games, etc. And it's fun to, to be collaborating constantly. And, uh, you know, you and I, I'm not going to say anything bad about ESPN, but it is, it is interesting to get out and see how a well oiled machine works versus some machines that don't work as well. So uh, it's kind of neat. That, that's been the thing. Because Miller Zell is a very, very exceptional company. I mean, I just, I can't get over how, smart these people are that I work with and it's uh I know I sound like I'm kind of flattering them but it's that's just the reality I you know people know who know me who may be listening to this know I'm not the type of person that just flatters heck no you're not you would you you definitely if, if something was stupid you would let people know you thought it was stupid I agree with you about the uh, the uh, that sports writing in this job you don't get the collaborative vibe and I didn't realize it personally until because you know you're you travel with other sports writers where you're you're you know friendly with them and you talk to editors but when you go you're kind of doing your own thing whereas I know now that I cover games as part of a broadcast there's a completely different vibe when you're you're all kind of pitching in and doing your own jobs and your own roles as part of a, a, a bigger picture thing so it's much different when you looked back at your career as a writer was there a this is what I found, and this is, you know, you correct me if you kind of feel it or not. One of the challenges I had when I briefly went into management at ESPN.com, and I'm talking about this lasted for less than a year, that I felt like I lacked, that I lost like a creative flavor to where I was going. And for some people who know, I, I was an art major in college, and I was more of a cartoonist, and I really don't do that anymore. And in part, I think, maybe because of lack of time, but also because you know, the writing part kind of satiates the creative nerve. Do you, and you had a strong voice. I mean, I, not to knock any other bloggers at ESPN.com had, but you definitely had a defined voice. And when you would do your mailbag, there was a lot of back and forth. And it was, I thought it was always really well thought out. And that's why I thought it resonated so well. 
Do you feel like you still have that creative, creative itch being scratched, or is that something that you know you may have to find in another way? Well, you know, when, when one thing I had was when you write mostly about the Pac-12, there's a different sort of audience, and you know, I don't know if my irreverence and mocking and cultural references, et cetera, et cetera, would work in every conference. And just the Pac-12 folks seem to appreciate it a little bit more, you know, and, and, and they could understand when I would make jokes at their expense. They seem to connect with that. Writing is always creative. And when I interact with people at Miller Zell right now, what I'm fascinated by is like I just learned that when you walk into a store, you design a pretty space and people are like, oh, that's a good looking space. But like with Miller Zell, it's very strategic. Everything they do is backed by research. And the company's been around for 50 years. It understands how consumers think, customers think when they walk into a store, what they want. And especially in this day and age where a lot of people are buying stuff online, Miller's Zell is, is kind of this on the forefront of getting you know, people into brick-and-mortar stores still and creating a different type of need within the consumer. And it's, it's, it's exciting. And, you know, I, I told you when we talked last week is that, you know, we just hired a new VP of uh, uh, national accounts who, you know, handled uh, a redesign of Texas Tech's athletic facility. So we even talked about how athletics facilities communicate to recruits. We've talked about how they, uh, they re- communicate to uh, fans, boosters, and within the building, and how the design works with, with those types of things. So it's, it's always creative. And I love the idea that A, it's creative, but B, it's also grounded in philosophy. When you were working at ESPN.com and covering the Pac-12, and we'll get into the Pac-12 and some of their issues and your perspective on it in a minute, but... I always noticed just from having a lot of friends who were in similar roles to you there, like early on, I remember sitting at a, I forgot, it was somewhere in the, maybe it was at the Georgia Dome and Chris Lowe is sitting next to me and he is, he must have blogged about eight different things and a lot of which didn't revolve around the game. It was like, there was a, I forgot who, somebody played like a terrible one double A team and he has to write about that. And then there was like a lot of other stuff he was doing. And this is back in maybe 2008 or 2009. I'm looking at him. I'm like, it was almost like watching time-lapse photography where I'm like, oh my God, I can actually see Chris Lowe aging during the course of this afternoon <laughs> because he's like, he's basically like the cartoon character holding all the spinning this you know the spinning cups in the air. Did you like how challenge it look at, you know, now that you're out of it? How frustrating and challenging was it to, to operate like that? And is that something where you're like, oh, I don't miss that? Or just looking back, there's a fondness for it, too? Well, you know, in 2008, when we started the, uh, the separate college football blogs, the, the philosophy was feed the beast. It was quantity, quantity, quantity. Not necessarily over quality, but the idea is that you want to write as much as you possibly can because all the different millions of people that who are interested in your conference or your teams or college football in general, who knows what they attach to. And we were going to evaluate what connected with readers, you know, and just with a variety of different posts. I mean, you talk about what you see down the field before the game. You talk about other games going on. You just keep commenting on, on every aspect of the college football game. But as we went along, we realized that the readers didn't necessarily always want quantity, and it wasn't really connecting as well as we used. So we, it, it was definitely a process of learning about an audience at ESPN. And, you know, and, and as you know, I've talked about, it's, it's, it's you, you sometimes I think you make missteps. I think when, when I think a lot of these people have said, hey, you know, let's go to video now because that's what people actually want. I mean, I don't know. I think the athletic is connected with an audience because they're saying, you know what, let's go hire the best writers out there. 
who are the best, not not just writers, but people who know the most about the teams they're covering and, and have that institutional knowledge. And that's what, I mean, they've got you, they've got guys like Stu Mandel, Chantel Jennings, people who understand what they're covering. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting dynamic going forward. Media is changing so rapidly. I mean, it's just like, you know, what I'm in now, retail is changing rapidly. Media is changing rapidly. And everybody's trying to find that secret sauce. And it's very possible that just the secret sauce changes on a regular basis, but you know, if you make the wrong tactical decision, you may not be able to recover from it. So I, 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 you know, I know how we started off in 08, and it was really hard. And then later on, we got more into, hey, let's have more high quality content. We'll mix it up with with videos and with stories and with quick hits and news items and opinion pieces. And you know, I still think that's the right dynamic. Is I still think an awesome audience wants a diversity of content, not just one thing. How much of an adjustment, like? You know, we've all had career setbacks and, and jolts to our career. When you're in the middle of it, especially when you're married with two kids, like, what is going through your head? I know you and I talked a little bit in the middle of all this stuff, but is it like, okay, you know what, life happens, I got to react to it? Or, you know, because I, I know you said you, you knew you had something with your brother. You, I remember you had also done some fiction writing that was more evolved and like for people who maybe aren't sports writers, but when you're dealing with something that is thrown at you, because one of the things that just from, you know, you want to be empathetic to your, to your friends who are going through stuff. And then you don't barely hear from people going, well, it's not just sports writers who are getting, you know, get laid off or it's not, you know, it's like invariably it's that. Now I think it is the newspaper business as, as I don't know if flawed is even the right way to say it. The newspaper business is just, it's an outdated model. And so it has struggled. And that's why the newspaper business is, struggling and to some extent shriveling up from your perspective on it. I mean, you're probably as good as a person to anybody to talk about it because being on the outside and now coming through it, what did you learn from it? You know, I mean, it was, it shows you that don't ever be cocky. I mean, I had just signed a new contract with ESPN. They gave me, you know, a title, senior writer. And I mean, that was in uh, basically the end of January, start of February. And then they let people go in April. And you and I had talked about the oncoming ESPN layoffs. I can say that now. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I had talked about it with people, and I felt completely secure. I did. It did not occur to me I would get a call that day. I, I don't think I was alone in that. But when I did get the call, I mean, in the end, it was just it was it was just very disappointing to, to find out that you were not indispensable. I mean, no one's indispensable, but to find out that you were among the ones who were dispensable, at least according to the people who made this decision. You know, and I, I spent some time trying to figure out why I was included. But that's just kind of, that's a wormhole. And, uh, you know, the funny thing about it is, is where I am now, in terms of just my general day-to-day happiness, it's, it's much higher. I mean, it's hard. People don't understand, like, being a sports writer, and, <laughs> I mean, preaching the choir, you work so damn hard is that it's a hard job, man. I mean, it's seven days a week for significant portions of the year. I mean, from August when the games start until January when the game's in, and then you've got everything else, spring practice, recruiting, you just don't have any time off. And it's different than than the real world. I work really hard in my new job, but if I knew years ago what I know now, I probably would have made the transition sooner. I, I kind of exhausted the ideal sports writing job for me would have been columnist to, to, to be the traditional city columnist. Like, Which you have in Seattle though, right? Yeah. I, mean, I loved that job. I mean, I was, you want to say like, that was a great job. It was a great fit. I enjoyed it. But newspapers, 
are, are, are struggling. And, and that national columnist job doesn't really exist like it used to. I mean, it just doesn't. It used to be that every city had somebody they turned to to interpret what was going on with the local teams. And it just doesn't seem like that's as much of an impactful position anymore. So I am lucky, and I, and I, I realize it every day, that, that I had a place to go. Because honestly, I mean, it was, it became, you know, when I was briefly looking for other sports writing jobs, it became abundantly clear that I was going to have to take a pay cut. And, you know, with two young kids, a family, I had no interest in doing that. So I didn't. And I found something else, and I, I'm grateful for it. I really am truly grateful for it. And, uh, you know, it's strange. I, I keep up with college football a little bit, but it was kind of a relief that when I would turn on a game and it wasn't that good, that I could just go, hey, I'm going to turn this off because it's 30 to nothing. You know, that type of thing. It's a good feeling. Whereas before, you know, explaining to people that when you're watching sports on TV, it's actually a job. It's kind of hard for them to understand that. But there was a lot of late night Pac-12 games that were terrible that I watched because it was work and no I didn't enjoy it. Well you know one thing that I can imagine and you know you, you know I've actually talked quite a bit but when you find out that they are making a business decision it was interesting just from having worked there and when they when the layoffs happen I'm watching it in real time online and it's massive layoffs and I've worked at places at Fox that certainly had them you know as well but you're looking at it and you go okay this person's letting go of that and you're seeing really good people who are like okay this, some of this doesn't make sense. Like I was with Max Olson a few days earlier. At the time, I didn't even know Max that well, but I had, we sat next to each other at the Texas spring game. I think his wife was just moving them into the new house they bought, young family. He's in Austin, Texas, which is obviously for your ESPN, a very desirable place. It's not like, no offense, but it's not like he's covering Iowa State or he's covering a smaller market team that doesn't have the same fan base. He's covering UT. And he's he's based there. He also, you know, I don't know what he's making at the time, but he's probably 26 or 27. He doesn't even make that much money at that point. So just from thinking about that, I'm like, okay, I don't quite get why they let him go. But I mean, you know, my own perspective, I, as I, I mean, you're definitely a better writer than a lot of the people I feel like they kept. But I don't know the finances of it. Obviously, you were in the Pac-12 where that isn't as passionate a, an audience but you definitely had a connection with the audience. So I think I'm sure it's hard when you're like trying to make sense of it because we're all, for the most part, rational beings. So we're like, wait, why did this happen to me? Why did, or not even to you, but why did they make these decisions that they made? And you kind of come walk away going, you're not in anybody's shoes, so you don't know. I mean, some of the people I think who are making those decisions, I'm pretty sure I read more of their college football bloggers than the people who made the decisions do. You know, we're ultimately have, you know, a hundred people under them and they're not college football fans. So, you know, they're kind of glancing and picking and choosing and stuff. So I just think, you know, it's just kind of a weird place to be in. That's, I think, somewhat unique in, in that regard, because it's, as you know, it's a subjective business. I mean, writing is a very subjective thing. Well, I mean, the whole thing was, was interesting. I mean, I, I thought about what, you know, they, they let Brett Murphy go. And I mean, like I thought to myself, well, I mean, who's going to break news? Them. I mean, Chris Lowe breaks a lot of news, but I mean, otherwise, there's really not someone who had, that had been his distinction. You know, and with me, you know, I, I, you know, I racked my brain about why I was a choice. You know, geography, they obviously just ripped apart their whole path. I mean, the ESPN doesn't care about the Pac-12, and, uh, you know, that was part of the layoffs is that they, they, hit, they crushed the West Coast. Money, I, you know, maybe that was a part of it. You know, I, I was doing fairly well. 
maybe I'm a little combative, as you know. Maybe I was difficult to work with at times. I mean, I, I was very defensive of my writing. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, you go through. I mean, what are the reasons? Why was I selected? And, and, you know, in the end, you just you can't really dwell on it. I mean, they had their own reasons, and they made their decisions, and, and they went with it. You know, and the, the thing is, I love those folks. I mean, Andrea and Heather and Chris and Adam and, you know, the guys behind the scenes, Dave Duffy. I mean, those guys... It was weird. That's the weirdest thing about it is people who you had long-term relationships with, who you talked to almost on a daily or weekly basis for a long period of time, for 10 years basically, you kind of cut off from them suddenly and it's very awkward. You know, a lot of them, you know, they keep in touch, they text me and, and ask me how I'm doing, but it's just, it's just a different dynamic. And yet you and I have like hung out enough that we just kind of had more of an endearing, enduring relationship. But for, for a lot of it, it's like you're just kind of cut off from your professional friends. And it's, 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 it's an interesting thing. But, I mean, you know, a lot of people in media have gone through it. So, you know, to act like that I'm uniquely cursed or something like that is just kind of childish. And like I said, I was very, very fortunate. I, mean, I, I cannot say that enough that I had some place to land that uh, made me happy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still I, I wonder how what's going to be the next steps. And it's it's, it's watching the media and how it's going to continue to change. It's, it's going to be interesting. And, uh, you know, obviously ESPN's got some smart people there that hopefully uh, for the sakes of the people who are still there, are, they're going to have some good solutions. Yeah, I, I definitely think in a lot of ways because of the layoffs ESPN had, because of the philosophical shift ESPN.com had and how they cover things, because they're still, as you mentioned, they're still really good people there. There's just not as many of them, but I think the athletic was fortunate that they created a void. You know, my the place I worked before the athletic, Sports Illustrated, doesn't have the travel budget to go out and go send people places. There's really no place that goes out on the road to send places, send people places to go chase stories to the level the athletic does. So it's fortunate in that regard. But at the end of the day, I think the people who who have said, and I don't know if this falls into the whole pivot to video thing, but like. There's just not an audience. People don't have the same attention span. Well, people do. They still do want to read. And they'll find the stories. And it's just, now, are there as many as we thought there were 20 years ago? Maybe not. But I still think we see it in younger people still want to read. They just, you know, it may, they, you know, look, I read stuff on my phone. My phone's not much bigger than a, than a credit card. But I'll read long stories on it. I just think you get used to it. Now that you're a little bit removed, and I know you said you don't follow it as closely, but you followed the Pac-12 as close as anybody for a long time. Did you see this decline in the, what's going on with Larry Scott's office? And it's, it's, it's a decline in two levels. It's one that's on the field, which I think is less, I don't think it's quite as connected as some people make it out to be to the finances and what's going on with the network and the struggles the Pac-12 network has had. What is your take on why things have backslid so much in the league? Wow, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a huge question. You know, uh, it wasn't too long ago that we were talking about the Big Ten like this. And the counter for the Big Ten would be, okay, yes, the Big Ten's quality of football slipped for a, in a, cycle, a downward cycle for a few years. However, there were always the large stadiums. There was always the revenue potential. And that's the challenge for the Pac-12 is the Pac-12 does not have a bunch of 100,000-seat stadiums. doesn't have the passion. And now that everything is getting monetized and monetized more efficiently, I guess, in some ways, you've got to wonder if the money eventually on the other end starts to be a decider about 
conference pecking order. I mean, the SEC and the Big Ten are the richest conferences. Are they going to automatically just dominate? Well, you can make a, a case for that. I mean, I know the ACC. I mean, it, it's weird how college football is in, indirectly. It's not just the Pac-12. I mean, when you really get down to it, at the end of the year, I've gotten to the point where we feel like as long as Nick Saban is at Alabama, Alabama is going to be in the picture. Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma. I mean, it just feels like there's this handful of almost sure things, and everybody else is kind of just a, a few steps below. So it's not just the Pac-12, but with the Pac-12, it really, I think, and, and gosh, I know people are going to get mad about me saying this, especially UCLA fans, but it's USC. The Pac-12 is not the same when USC is meandering around like it is now. And, I mean, it's just strange, I mean, the, 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 the lack of leadership at that program. And, you know, I like Clay Helton personally. He's a good guy. But USC needs to be paying it, paying its coach $7 million a year, which, by the way, would not be the same money as you're spending $7 million in the SEC because the cost of living is L.A., which you know all about. Mm-hmm. But they need to be big time, and, and they need to be leading. And the dream scenario, of course, is – USC playing Oregon or Washington in the Pac-12 championship game with two top five teams for a, uh, a spot in the college football playoff. But USC needs to be good for the U- for the Pac-12 to be where it is. Now, in terms of in- administration with Larry Scott, great start to his tenure, but they started to make a series of tactical blunders, a little bit of uh, hubris probably mixed in there. And I mean, it started with the idea that just, hey, let's go base ourselves in San Francisco, which is the most expensive city in the country because that's really stupid i mean it was just they should have done i mean i remember talking to some ad's about this why didn't they go to salt lake city you know if they really care about media markets they should have been in la but go somewhere where it's inexpensive which oh by the way was the model that they used for espn go somewhere inexpensive and build yourself up there but you know even then like the operating costs aren't that ridiculous and john wilner over in san jose does a great job of, of being the one voice that follows all the, the machinations inside the pac-12 office and the bad decisions but, you know, I would say if I were going to take an optimistic turn to this, is it cyclical? I just don't think the Pac-12 is going to be in misery for, like, forever. I don't think this is a permanent condition. I think USC is probably going to hire a new coach at some point who leads the program back to a national status. I just can't imagine that USC is not going to return to being a national power. Uh, I know there's a fantasy about Urban Meyer out there in some quarters in L.A. right now. So, I mean, it's just... I think it's a cycle, but there's definitely some real-world issues in terms of money, and and they've got to figure out a way to counter the fact that the Big Ten and, and uh, SEC just make a lot more money. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you about the USC point especially. Now, look, I think if Jacob Eason is as good as the recruiting guys said he was, and five, if, he, if he actually plays like a five-star quarterback at Washington, I think Washington is a playoff team. I think they're going to be good enough. Like, Jimmy Lake has shown he can develop defensive backs as good as anybody, as well as anybody. They were underachieving at receiver. Let's see if, you know, they made a coaching change there. Let's see what happens. But if Jacob Eason plays like a five-star quarterback, I think they have enough players around there, the way they've recruited, that I think they're a a top five, top ten team. And if you're that, you have a chance. You know, like, one of the things well, I that— I mean, honestly, I, I watched Washington last year, and, you know— the big game was when they lost to Auburn. I mean, that was a road game. But mm-hmm. watching that game, I kept thinking, you know, Washington looks to me like the better team. They were in control after the first quarter, and they just kept, you know, stepping on their own feet. And uh, and I, I kept wondering as I watched them during the season, Jake Browning, God bless him, but the arm strength was an issue. 
and uh, it came into games so often. And you know, that is not going to be an issue with Eason. So I wonder if all of a sudden those underperforming receivers are going to look a lot better with the ball delivered on time and at a certain velocity now. I, I, you know, I, I think you're making a good point. And Lord knows they're going to get the coaching. I mean, Chris Peterson, as you said, Chris Peterson, Jimmy Lake, those guys can coach the heck out of that team. And so you know, it's going to be the question of, of who else can step up and, and match them. Because, I mean, Washington is a national program, and you know it's been there. So it's not like it's going to be a newbie to the, the big-time bowl games. You covered Chip Kelly when he was at Oregon. For people who saw three and nine, what are your expectations of, of him at UCLA? No, it's strange. I don't know. I mean, I, they didn't have the old Chip Kelly mojo last year. That's for sure. I mean, I know they played better at the end of the season, and and I'm not. I you know usually I would be speaking from the idea of I've been over to UCLA and, and hung out with Chip and, and talked to people at the program, so I would have a lot of inside information, and I have none. I have none. What I can tell you is that I always thought Chip Kelly was the smartest guy in the room. That he he was just one step ahead of everybody. He was always changing his philosophies and, 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 and you know elevating them. And you know he, he was cutting edge with Oregon. And there was really very few missteps. I know that the, the recruiting thing you know obviously soiled his tenure there. But in terms of just pure coaching, X's and O's, and you know way to run a program he, program, he was ahead of everybody. You didn't see a lot of that with UCLA last year, so you got to wonder, like, did he lose his mojo when he was in the NFL? I mean, did something happen that kind of changed things? Or maybe he's being too stubborn now with certain ideas, but I would have a hard time betting against him. I just think he's, he's a very, very good football coach, and even though I know that recruiting wasn't very good, I just I have a hard time believing that UCLA won't figure things out with him as the head coach, because... I mean, you know, he's, he's, he is as sharp a mind in football, especially offensively, that, that I've ever dealt with. Yeah, just as a, to button that up a little bit, when you talk to guys on that staff, like they are convinced they are going to win pretty big there and that they know exactly what they're doing. And look, if you look at what they did in the last four games of the season offensively, it was a big difference compared to the rest of the season. I think, you know, the rest of the season, I think, in eight, the pre, first eight games, I think they were over 425 yards once, and that was against Arizona. In the last four games, they averaged around 500, close to 500 yards a game. So I think it may have taken some time for them to figure out each other and what they were working with. I think him being back certainly makes it more interesting, and, and Lord knows the, that that division is down. So, and I love dealing with him. I got to admit, like, you know, people would look at Chip and think he was really sour with the media, but I enjoyed him. I enjoyed that interplay. I enjoyed the sarcasm and, and, and the quips. And uh, I think he makes the Pac 12 better to have a coach with a little personality. Now, I know that he, he seems a little bit more withdrawn now. You know, he doesn't like to give as much access as he used to. I mean, he used to be great. I mean, I remember when I was in Oregon, he brought me into the team meetings. And, and showed me what they were doing. And you know, he just got the whole Willie Lyles deal, recruiting problem, kind of soured him. And he just shut down on the media. And I, and I would, you know, I, if I were like encouraging Chip, I'd say, people need to see you, Chip. I mean, you, you, your funny, mocking ways need to be out there in front uh, of the program because that's part of your personality. And I think it, that shtick works and it, 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 and it helps. It helps the program, it helps its attitude. And I think Oregon kind of had that attitude that Chip adopted and I hope that he, he, he's a little bit less shy about attention lets people like Bruce Feldman come into practice and hang out and get an inside look about what he's trying to build alright Ted what is next for you well you know I, I am I am happy I am happy with what I'm doing now 
and I, you know, I hope to be a part of building. Uh, you know, Miller's L is, is a pretty significant entity in Atlanta, and uh, I hope to be as part of the continued growth of that company. I mean, uh, we we had a great year last year, and a lot of potential to grow. We're hiring like crazy, bringing people in. And I said, you know, as I mentioned, you no, know, <laughs> who knows? It's possible that uh, we're going to be connecting with some of my old friends in, in college sports doing some branding and some facilities renovations. And, uh, and I think that's a really exciting opportunity. So my, what's next for me is I'm hoping to do as, as well as I can at Miller's Zone and, uh, continue to grow there. And, uh, and I have no interest in getting back into it. I like, I like so many people I worked with, but, uh, you know, I, I'm done with sports. I'm done with sports writing and, uh, I'm, I'm moving on, but I appreciate <laughs> you're even thinking of me to bring me on this show. I mean, that may be the lowest rated show you've ever had, but I do appreciate uh, getting a chance to relive it because it is nostalgic. I do enjoy talking about this stuff. Did you ever feel, uh, this just popped in my head, because you had such a unique connection, you know, relative to the other folks at ESPN.com with how you wrote your mailbags and different things where there was a connection, maybe it wasn't as big a connection as it, because the, the marketplace wasn't as big on the Pac-12, but did you ever get kind of a chance to, to um, I don't want to say goodbye, but just kind of like it just kind of cut off, right? So does any part of you feel like that is still there or is it just kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm in a good place and people know how to find me. If they want to reach out to me over Twitter, I'm still there kind of thing. Well, I mean, I'm still on Twitter. I don't, I don't tweet about college football that much. I retweet stuff every once in a while. So, uh, but I, you know what? Here's the deal: is that what was fun about it was is that you know we deal with a lot of trolling, a lot of fans that are kind of crazy. But when I went when when I left ESPN, I got a lot of people who said nice things to me. You know, gosh, I can't wait to read you again. Gosh, it's killing me that you're not in the business. You know, etc. Just people saying nice things, and, and I still get occasional contact like that, and, and I you know I enjoy it, and it's it's fun. And one of the, one of the things about the the personality of the fan bases were so various. You know, I, I had a really good connection, I think, with every single... I had a certain number of fans from every single fan base who I had a correspondence with in some ways. I mean, some more than others. I definitely had something with a lot of Washington fans because of my Seattle roots. And I had a, definitely had something with some of the Cal fans because the Cal Golden blogs was... You know, when we just got started in 2008, they were doing the SB Nation site. You know, I met a lot of the guys at Cal, and they were so thrilled with the, the rise of Cal under Jeff Tedford. And, you know, they just had a lot... They had a great perspective... On, on the team's success. And then when the team fell, like even then they had perspective that I appreciated. You know, I had the same thing, you know, with different programs. Oregon, you know, Oregon fans are can be pretty hard on you. They got a little FSU to them. But, I mean, there was also plenty of Oregon fans that really just were just charmed with the program rising. So I still feel like most of my followers on Twitter, there's not a whole lot of them, but are college football people. And, uh, you know, there was some relationships there. But uh, – I don't think it would have been rather pretentious if they'd given us an opportunity to have a farewell column or story to our fan bases, but uh, it is what it is. And uh, you know, college football fans obviously can move on pretty quickly. And you know, I would tell all the Pac-12 fans, focus on your team. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Get back into the uh, national picture first. And, you know, and thank God we don't have to talk about college basketball because, good lord, I was just reading 5:38 just. Uh, took apart the Pac-12, especially on basketball. And I'm like, man, you know, this isn't my fault. They can't blame me. Yeah. Well, on that note, I would encourage people, if they know Ted, to follow him on Twitter, if they already don't, at Ted Miller RK. 
Ted, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Hopefully, I'll see you at some point down the road. I, I miss having you on the college college beat. Nobody else, uh, nobody was more fun to have on a road trip to, to Eugene, Oregon than you. <laughs> you, mean, you mean Staples roaming the streets, auctioning off my pants, right? What was that then? <laughs> yeah, win, win, win Ted Miller's pants, yeah. So. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, it was good talking to you, Bruce. I, I appreciate the time. All right, thanks, Ted. We appreciate Ted Miller for joining us on the Audible. Before we get to our next guest, Hall of Fame football coach Jim Donnan, let's talk about something that every football coach needs to be really good at, and that's recruiting. And we're proud to be sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge, but there is one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter. Dot com slash T-A-S-B. ZipRecruiter sends you over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply for your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. That's pretty impressive. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now I'm joined by Hall of Fame football coach Jim Don. And Jim and I worked together back at our ESPN days years ago. And he's still really, really plugged in on the sport, as, as, uh, as a lot of people inside the sport know. Coach, thanks for joining me on the Audible today. Hey, really good to be with you, Bruce, and enjoy listening to you uh, and reading everything you continue to do. I taught you pretty well up to ESPN, right? You did. You <laughs> did. So I was going to ask you, um, before we get in, this is probably a pretty sweet time for you. One of your former players, Champ Bailey, is going in the Hall of Fame. I know you had a couple of guys up for induction, Richard Seymour, another Georgia guy, and Heinz Ward was in that process. When I say Champ Bailey, what's the biggest story that comes back to your mind? Well, he, you know, I had some really good players, just like most successful coaches that have winning teams. Uh, you got to have great players, but Champ was the best player I ever coached just because he could play on offense, defense, special teams, just uh, had good leadership skills. But, you know, the, <clears throat> the best story I have on, on Champ is actually the recruiting story where, you know, when I got the job, one of the most uh, formidable things to do when you take over a job like this is to get into recruiting quickly and because you haven't really been in on, in on any of these kids. And so we have already had uh, Champ's brother here, Ronald, who was a really good player as a corner. So he had a little leg up on people. So, so I went down to watch him play a high school basketball game. And we were a little late getting there and right as a tip off, you could see the ball go to Champ and he takes it and slams it. When any question who the best player in the place was right off the bat, there are a lot of coaches there, maybe eight or nine coaches. We had it set up after it was over to go uh, eat at his mother's house. And uh, so we went over there and we're just having a casual 
after dinner talk there, you know, about recruiting, and the phone keeps ringing. That's what happens a lot of times. You know, a coach will know that you're there at another athlete's house, and they'll just try to disrupt it a little bit. And uh, sometimes they don't know. But in this case, it was Steve Spurrier, and he kept calling, and the, the, his sister, Danielle, would go over and whisper in the mother's ear and say something, and she'd just kind of wave her off. And after about the fourth call, she said, let me have that phone. And she said, Coach Spurrier, this is Elaine Bailey, and I just want to tell you, I don't appreciate you calling while Coach Donovan's here, and I just want to tell you right now, Champ's going to Georgia. <laughs> well, that was really the first I'd heard of it. I was hoping so, but it was a good, I always kind of bust Spurrier on that, but it was good to, to know that right off the bat that, that we were in good shape with him. So obviously you're going to have some great stories over the years. When I, You worked for, for Barry Switzer. He's, he's a legend as well. What, like, you know, there's a lot of legend, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the stories were in his, his biography um, that probably came out, I don't know, 20 years ago. But is there a, more of an under-the-radar story that, that kind of you think gets to the essence of Barry Switzer that people should know? Well, the first thing, you know, he's just such a genuine person, really cared about the players and the coaches, and very intelligent. You know, had a chance to go to the Naval Academy, and one of the smartest guys I've ever been around in any phase of life but uh you know he let the coaches coach and and, you know you you had your offensive coordinator defensive coordinator but he was you know he was really good at at at, uh, letting you know what he wanted he's a great recruiter but a really good story about switzer that uh i'm sure dave weinstead probably will remember he talks to you all the time but you know oklahoma state was a team that we had a pretty good run against and uh not just when i was there but over the years but it was always a deal where Switzer really didn't give them quite as much credit as he did Texas and uh, Nebraska as far as the robbery games. And uh, so one year we're playing them, and uh, Barry, uh, Barry was called in to our meeting there, uh, our staff meeting there, and uh, Gary Gibbs, the defensive coordinator, said, hey, coach, I don't want you to start busting up on Oklahoma State so much this week. They're really good. You need to go down there and watch some tape on them. He said, they're a good football team. And he said, okay, I will. And of course, obviously, he watched tape, but most of the time he watched the other team's defense. He's more of an offensive coach. But So he goes down there, and, you know, you got to remember they had all these great players like Thurman Thomas and, Hartley Dykes and, you know, Mike Gundy and all these guys. And uh, he comes back up there. He said, we'll be okay as long as uh, Thurman Thomas doesn't get hurt. And Barry, uh, all of us said, what do you mean, coach? He said, hey, if they put that freshman Barry Sanders in there, we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> so that was the first that I'd really, you know, we'd heard about Barry Sanders. But, you know, Switzer could, and, and Thurman Thomas, one of the best backs ever. And, uh, you know, he just recognized that this guy was an unbelievable force there as a freshman. And it was kind of funny at the time, but it was certainly uh, very uh, clairvoyant of him to analyze him like that. Yeah. One of the things uh, you hear a lot of, especially these these days, is coaches going to clinic and going around to visit with other staffs and other schools to try to always, you know, professional development. What was it like back when you were when you were an assistant coach? Was it similar? Was there more of it was, because of travel? Was it harder? What 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 was it like back then? Well, you don't have near as many training films or, or things like you have now. Everything's on the Internet, so, you know, you don't probably go out as much. But I know when I was a young coach, I made a really big move to try to go visit all the coaches I could. And the two that were the most 
beneficial to me was number one, going out to uh, visit with Bill Walsh when he was at Stanford, and I had a chance to really uh, watch him practice, go into meetings, see the intricacies of the West Coast offense, learn all about the way he practiced, the, you know, um, amazing detail. And then uh, I also went to watch Joe Gibbs practice at uh, when he was a coach at as assistant coach at for the San Diego Chargers when they had Fouts and Winslow and all that and you know they had such a great package there you know m- mostly throwing the ball but they really had a tremendous screen game and all that and we went to study the screen game and all the different things that they did but the the biggest part of, about both those visits was that the interaction that both of these guys had the time and the patience to meet with a young coach and talk to us to me and particularly about developing quarterbacks, about teaching the uh, techniques that really uh, helped me for 40 years in coaching. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget how, how good they were to me. And uh, that's what I always tried to do when another coach visited our staff. And the last part was we when we went to Oklahoma and decided to go back to the pure bone like uh, we did, uh, we went out and visited Air Force Academy that were they were doing a really good job with their splits and their offensive line. So we visited with Fisher DeBerry and learned a little bit about how they were doing things with, you know, maybe a little lesser talent, but really good fundamental wishbone stuff. And that really helped me in my development at Oklahoma. When you visit Bill Walsh, so was that like a day there? Did you go with the whole offensive staff? Does, like who was on his staff and and what do you remember specifically about him like that kind of really opened your eyes? I just got to go because one of uh, a player that I had uh, had played for him was Cincinnati and uh, I was going to go to the West Coast to do some junior college recruiting and so I basically was just set up to go out there for a day and a half, two practices and uh, you know what I remember is the, the first question he asked me was uh, you know, how, tell me about your practice organization, he said do you film play polish and I said really we don't really do that he said well how do you know what the guys do uh, that aren't that you aren't watching and I it made a really good uh, sense to me you know from that point on and of course everybody films everything or tapes everything now but that was in 1977 and then the other thing he said to me which is kind of you know, kind of off the wall, but it's really a, a, he said, what do you like to do? And then, of course, you know, I like to play tennis and I played tennis in college. And, and I said, hey, I like tennis. He said, I do too. And he said, you know, if you got a chance here before practice, I said, we got a big match over here against Pepperdine today. And, you know, he's talking about their tennis team and he said, hey, we got this guy from New York, this young phenom, his name's John McEnroe. And if you go over there, you can probably watch him. So that's the first time I'd ever heard of John McEnroe. Wow. Wow. Was that something that you would do every year? Would you go someplace or some, I'm sure a lot of people came out, especially when you were at OU to kind of clinic with you guys. Was it, how prevalent was it back then? Yeah, I think it's pretty prevalent. You know, know, maybe when you had a system like we did at OU, we were a little bit hesitant to give away too many secrets, but we did help Colorado. And of course, uh, that was before they really got it going, but I knew Jerry DiNardo and uh, Gary Barnett and uh, we visited with them a little bit and helped them. But we didn't help them near as much as we did after they got it rolling. But we talked to them a little bit about the pure basics of it. But I think most of the time back then, I remember I went down and visited with Bill Snyder uh, when he was at 
North Texas, and he was coaching for Hayden Fry, and they were running what everybody calls the empty or no-back sets now. And we uh, had a good visit there for like two and a half days. And what was unbelievable to me was, you know, I was pretty young. Of course, he's three or four years older than me, but this guy had a thirst for football. I mean, you know, you couldn't – I was ready to leave about, you know, 10 o'clock at night. He just wanted to keep talking, and he was just – he really helped me with that empty set, and uh, we used that a lot over the years, particularly uh, some of the things that he, that he used for his pass protection on that. So uh, that was something that stuck out for me visiting with Bill Snyder about that. that do, did you know him before that, or did you just like – how do you – No, did... I didn't uh... – I didn't. Uh, uh, Carl Selmer, who was on our staff, had a relationship with uh, Hayden Fry. He knew Hayden Fry, and Hayden Fry set it up, and and uh, we went down there and visited North Texas. It was out. It was really a good visit, and uh, probably I should have mentioned that along with the other two guys, but it really had a lot to do with uh, you know formulating some of the pass protection for sure on the empty set. So this is way before he was at Iowa. How old was he back then? Well, that was like nine, probably 1979 or something like that. So I would say, what is he, 80 now? You know, whatever that is. So, he, But he was a stickler for detail, I can tell you that. I was impressed with that. And I was impressed with their own field coaching. You know, they, didn't, they weren't quite as talented as they became at Iowa and, you know, Kansas State. But they really did a good job teaching. And I think that's for the people that listen to this show your show, which I'm sure there's plenty of people that aren't necessarily coaches, but, you know, whether you're a little league coach or whether you're junior high or college or high school or pro, fundamentals and knowledge of assignment and technique ability is so critical nowadays because you got so many good athletes, and I know the fans will be interested in reading your article about the freaks that are going to the combine. I just read it, and as usual, you picked out some really good guys, but you know, the thing that you got to understand and most of the guys you play against are really good athletes and you need to know the fundamentals of your position to uh, to execute against them just like uh, they're going to do against you even though you have good athletic ability. So being a good teacher and a good fundamental coach is really important. Of course, you got to be a good recruiter too. Hey, Coach, you're in you're in the, in Georgia now. You're you've been there for a long time. You go way back with Kirby Smart. When we look at obviously the recruiting that he's done has been pretty remarkable. He's pushing with Alabama. It's neck and neck. What do you think the biggest area he has improved from how it was running when Mark Richt was there? And Mark Richt had a lot of success. But what do you think? What do you notice as the biggest area where you feel like Georgia's taken a big step forward? Well, Mark did a tremendous job here. Uh, there's no question about it. But at the same time, I think uh, uh, when they made the change here, they realized that to catch up with Alabama, and which they haven't beaten them yet, but certainly got in the ballpark with them, that you know they need to have some facility enhancement. We're kind of sitting back there, so they've really done some really good things with the indoor facility and new. Uh, dressing room and recruiting room down at the stadium and, and things like that. But I, I just think the blueprint that, that Nick Saban has throughout the SEC is pretty prevalent now, Bruce, when you look at all the coaches that have are on his coaching tree that are around. And I think Kirby has his own model that he's using, not everything that Nick does, but certainly, you know, the, all the different 
things that they do in recruiting. Uh, you know, they, he's got a really good personnel guy in Marshall Malco who was with him there at, at Alabama and also worked for Peterson out at Washington. And I think just the organization of the recruiting on a national basis to go with the, you know, everybody knows what a great state Georgia is, but he's been able to go out and really do well in the peripheral states. He got two really good players out of Alabama this year. He, he continues to recruit the North. He got Swift out of uh, and Webb out of Pennsylvania, uh, Wilson out of New Jersey. Uh, you know, New York area. So, uh, but uh, as far as him as a coach, you know, he knows what he wants. He's a great teacher. He loves Georgia. He and his wife both went to school here and he just uh, knows how to get the best out of his players. And he's a very good, uh, good motivator. So I, I don't know how much he's improved in, in each area, but I do know this, that uh, our talent level has made a marked improvement since he got here because, uh, you just look at the kind of athletes that are on, on both sides of the ball right now, and you'll see. And I think that's going to be pretty prevalent from now on. You think they're closer now to to overtaking Alabama, or do you think that it's still – I mean, how, how, where is this team compared to the team that had Roquan Smith uh, two years ago? Well, we're going to have some issues, you know uh, – uh, replacing different guys every year that that happens but had really good leadership on that team you know with Roquan and Chubb and and uh, and Sony Michelle and those guys but I think the biggest difference for our team particularly on we, we had a, a pretty much of a, a drop-off last year defensively personnel wise losing Roquan and and guys like that but I think Defensively, we're going to be very much improved in the secondary and an inside uh, linebacker, which is going to help us a lot. Our defensive front should still be pretty good at kicking game and offense. So it's hard to know what it's going to take. Certainly Clemson's got had the, the move there last year to beat Alabama, but we've been fortunate to dominate the, the Eastern Division. Bruce, as you know, 12-0 and 0 over the last two years, and nobody really played us very close in the East. So I think that's helped a lot, but... You know, continue to struggle a little bit. Some of the, against some of these uh, Western teams had the loss to LSU this year and to Alabama. So uh, we got another tough schedule next year with A and M and Auburn. You know, in the crossover games. All right. Well, Coach, I always appreciate catching up with you, and hopefully, we'll talk to you as we get closer to the season. So uh, again, congrats on on one of your former players going in the Hall of Fame. That's a great honor. Yeah, certainly proud of uh, Champ, and hopefully Richard and uh, Hines will make it soon. And appreciate all you do for college football, Bruce. You know, everybody enjoys listening and watching you. You're becoming a real star on the sideline. Hey, just like you taught me, Coach. All right, see you, Bruce. Thanks. And we thank our guests, Ted Miller and Coach Jim Donnan, for joining us on the Audible. Stu will be back with me next time. As always, if you want to send emails or comments to the Audible, you can do it at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll speak to you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at 
theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.